going to look at Joshua chapter 9, and just to recap what's gone on so far, you know, God has basically called Joshua to go in and take out, uh, take out the promised land, to uh, basically eliminate all the inhabitants of the land, and they're going to go possess the land that God has given to them. He's parted the, the Jordan so that they cross over. He's made the walls of Jericho fall down and delivered the city into their hand. They've now defeated the, the city of Ai, and now we're sitting at a point where the army of Joshua and Israel are, they've experienced some success, okay? And now I just want to, before we really get into this passage, I want to start by addressing a danger that sometimes, it, it, it's one of those things that can take us by surprise if we're not prefaced for it, especially if you are a non-believer or a young believer. And so I just want to start with this caution. Sometimes when people tell you about the gospel of Christ, when they say that, you know, embrace the, the blessing that is found in entering into a relationship with Christ, entering into a relationship with God, you're going to have a, a whole new destiny in mind for you. You're going to have hope. You're going to have an identity poured over you. You're going to be set free. And we're going to paint it in just a beautiful picture. But here's the thing. Sometimes we forget to tell you that the Christian life is also hard sometimes. I mean, those of us who have been walking with the Lord for long enough, we are well aware of that. That sometimes pain, difficulty, disappointment, things come in. And, you know, the reason why, here's the thing. Let me, let me give a little grace to those of us who may accidentally portray the gospel in this way. We don't do it intentionally. Because when you've walked with the Lord long enough, you do go through the hard times. But it's always worth it. Looking back, you always see that the pain, the difficulty, the struggle, the suffering was so worth the reward. And you can talk to anyone that's been walking with the Lord long enough and maturely, and they will articulate that exact same thing, that the pain is worth worth it. And so what happens is sometimes we forget the pain. We forget the struggle because the glory is so good. And so sometimes when we articulate the gospel to a brand new Christian or to uh, someone that just doesn't know the, the, what Christianity is all about, we forget to tell them that sometimes difficulty, in fact, it's not sometimes, like difficulty will arise. It's laying down the road. You will be attacked. I had a pastor that articulated it this way, that basically when you become a Christian, now you have God and Satan trying to kill you because God's trying to break you down and form you into the image of Jesus Christ. He's trying to destroy the sinful man that we are and conform you into the image of his son Jesus. And now you become a threat to the enemy. And so now he actually has a reason to attack you. And so you shouldn't be shocked when you start getting attacked because you now have stepped, you've chosen a team, and it's not his team. Now he's got a, a reason to do something against you. And so when we look at what's going on here in uh, Joshua chapter 9, we're going to see that basically they're about to get attacked. Verse 1 through 2, which we're not going to really go through a whole lot, is it's talking about that so far the other kings in Canaan have looked and seen what God has done through the nation of Israel. He's 
miraculously destroyed. You know, first of all, he's parted the Jordan, which is you know, kind of a crazy thing. He's made the walls fall down because people blew some trumpets and walked around it and delivered the city into their hand. And now he's delivered I into their hand. And so all the other kings are getting just a little bit nervous. Can you blame them? I mean, here comes this just group of nomads basically from the desert that have been wandering around out there for 40 years, and now they start taking out cities. And so what they do is they put their heads together, and they're like, okay, we, we got to actually take this threat seriously. So let's band our forces, and now we're going to go at them with a united front, okay? That, I mean, most of the time, you know, when we think of being attacked, we think of that overt attack. We think of there is an oppressor in my life, right? I mean, when we think of the, the attacks even on Christianity, we may have, you know, like third world missions come to mind where people are actually in danger of their lives for doing what we're doing here today. Thank you, God, for giving us this opportunity in the United States today to be able to worship you without fear of our lives. Don't take that for granted. But what I do want to talk about today is not necessarily the overt attack. What I want to talk about today is the subtle attack. The subtle attack that the enemy so often brings in. And, you know, before I really go there, I want to just read a couple passages to you that just reflect on this, that we are actually going to be attacked. First Peter 4, 12-13, it reinforces this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, I mean, I love the fact that it says we're rejoicing at his glory being revealed at the end. But there's that little part right before that where we're supposed to rejoice that we're sharing in his suffering. This shouldn't be a surprise. I also reflected back as I was just thinking about this concept on the very first sermon, I think, that I preached when I came to Santa Barbara, which was on Psalm 23. And, you know, it starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Oh, gosh, I love that part. I mean, isn't that beautiful? It gives the image of, you know, this lamb just laying in green pastures, being provided for, being nurtured by the shepherd, being led by these still, calm waters. You know, the shepherd's leading the sheep wherever it needs to go to be provided for and taken care of. But then verse 4 hits. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What? Are you kidding me? Like, okay, so basically what I was doing is I was following you along on these paths of righteousness. I was doing this, and, you know, I had these green grass fields. I had this calm water. And now all of a sudden I look up, and I am in the pit of hell. Don't be surprised when that happens, because here's the thing. The sheep did it by walking obediently. The sheep did it by following the shepherd. And so sometimes you can get into your mind that you may have chaos and suffering going on in your life, and you're thinking, where did I go wrong? Did I make a left turn somewhere? No. A lot of times it's because you are under attack. So don't be surprised when that occurs. 
So let's look at the subtle attack here. Go ahead and get verse 3 up there for me, please. This is what the Gibeons do. It says, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Okay, so let me just kind of preface here real fast. So they decided... We ain't going to go up against that God. You know, one of the cool things about this is that the, the Gibeons were known for being kind of the strong guys, the big dudes in this area, and yet they're the ones that looked at what God had done and said, we can't take that. They recognized God. What a cool thing. That's just kind of a little free nugget, that even the enemy will recognize God and recognize often that he can't take him. All he can do is go after his people. And that's ultimately what the Gibeons decide to do. They're like, we can't take out God. doesn't matter how unified, how big our armies are. If God has delivered it into, our, into Israel's hands, we're done. And so the best we can do is try to come after his people. So don't be surprised. So what they do is they, you know, put on this drab clothing. And I mean... They, they, they get worn-out sandals, worn-out wineskins. They, they get donkeys that look like they've just been beaten with an ugly stick, right? And they bring them before Joshua and say, hey, we're from a far-off land. Remember, these guys are from the promised land, and God has specifically said, go take out everyone in the promised land. And so they had to basically trick the nation of Israel into thinking that they had come from a long ways away. That's the whole idea with the worn-out clothing and all that. So let's pick it up in verse 8. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. They recognized God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. So these people, they come, they try to trick the nation of Israel into thinking that they had made, uh, or that they had come from a long ways away, and they wanted to enter into basically an alliance with the nation of Israel. They wanted to basically make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel because that's the only way that we're going to survive because God has delivered this entire land and all of its people into the hands of the nation of Israel. So our only hope is not to unify and try to stand up against them. No, 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 we can't do that. I know we're big and bad, but our only hope is to trick God's people. This is a subtle attack. And as I was thinking about this, I was trying to figure out what do the Gibeonites, that's a tough word, Gibeonites, represent to us today? What is kind of the overriding theme that they represent? And I came up with three. One is the temptation of security. The temptation of security. And see, here's the weird thing. A couple of these are going to have like temptation, which is kind of negatively context. And then security. Really? That's, is security a bad thing? Can be. Why? Ultimately, God didn't tell them to. 
God didn't say, I want you to have a backup plan. I mean, if you think of it logically, you know, from the nation of Israel's perspective, they're going to go take in this land, and by now they've probably been like, okay, you know, God, you've parted a river for us, you've made walls just fall down. I mean, you know, you could do this, and you're probably going to give this land into us, you know, give this land to us. But these aren't the only bad boys on the block here. There's other places all around here that probably want a piece of this land. And so, you know, maybe we need to hedge our bets. Maybe we need to make alliances with the other nations around just so that we know that we're not going to catch it in the back end, right? And so they are tempted by the security by entering into a relationship, entering into a peace treaty with these big, strong guys. But the problem with that is God didn't tell them to, and it's a lack of faith. Because the bottom line is God delivered the, the, the land into their hands or was in the process of delivering it into their hands. God's fully capable of protecting them from outside issues as well. Not saying that having a you know, backup plan is not a good idea sometimes, but make sure it's in line with what God's called you to do. They also represent the enemy who looks like a friend. I was thinking about this. I mean... If we all look back on our childhood or different parts of our lives, can you think back to like a friend that they, they really weren't that much of a friend? All they really did was just get you into trouble. I was trying to think of a really good story to throw this on, to, to illustrate this, and the best one I could think of was, you know, when I was in college, you know, this is at Texas A&M University many, many moons ago, um, we were in the midst of dead week which was, you know, I think it was my junior year. And dead week is this period where, you know, you're supposed to be studying for finals because you got all your finals that are about to hit you all at once. And so they give you like a week or three days, depending on the, the university, to just study, right? Or like a day. I don't know what UCSB does. Zero. Oh, that's terrible. Anyway, we were blessed at, at Texas A&M. Anyway, maybe they've caught on that we just didn't take advantage of the dead week. But anyway, so we had a week just set aside where there's no classes. All it was was, you know, time set aside to study for your finals. Well, I mean, who really needs a full week to study? Honestly, I mean, seriously. So what we ended up doing was we basically goofed off for like the first five, six days, six and a half days, and then just crammed at the end, right? Well, I go down, you know, I'm in the dorm just kind of walking around. And I see some of my friends that are kind of in the stairwell. And the stairwell has this window that looks out over the quad. And, I mean, the quad is this area where, you know, it's got all sorts of sidewalks and leads from building to building, high traffic kind of area. And it was pretty early, so not a whole lot of traffic at that point, and also dead week, but there was still some. And what they were doing was they had one of those water balloon launchers. Can I get an amen? Those things are so much fun. And so, I mean, if you're not familiar with this, this is this big electrical tubing type, you know, apparatus. You have two guys that hold it, one on this end, one on this end, and another guy has this little pouch right here that you pull it way back, put a water balloon in, and just let it go, and it throws it like 100 yards. No kidding. Like, it can go, man. And so we're shooting these off from, or at least they're shooting them off. I'm about to join them. They're shooting them off from this, you know, third-story window. And, I mean, we're angsty college students. So, of course, we're not just aiming at inanimate objects. No, 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 no. We're trying to hit these random groups of people that are walking across the wall, the, the quad right here. And, yes, I mean, don't do that. 
It's, it's mean. But, I mean, I have my friends who are like, Clint, come join in. It'll be fun. It's awesome. And, I mean, I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't need much convincing. So, <laughs> so I go down there, and I, I'm like, all right, you know, I'll take a shot. You know, I had stuff to do that day. Probably wasn't studying, but anyway. So I grab the thing. I pull it way back. And, I mean, the beauty of how this is set up is that you've got a sidewalk that goes from left to right. And you've got two big trees on either side. Sets up this nice just corridor strip where you can just take dead aim on that, you know, get it lined up, and just wait for the person, the, the person or group of people to, like, get into the target zone, right? And so I pull it back. I'm looking at this group. I've got a group of, like, five, six students that have no idea what's on their way. And I'm getting it. I'm aiming it. I let it go. I mean, it's a perfectly on target. You know, perfect arc just going, and I'm just, I'm watching it, I'm sitting back like, yes, bask, yes, and so I'm seeing it go, and this group is going from my left to my right. What I failed to see was there was a full bird colonel in full dress uniform making his way from left to right. The balloon hit him right in the leg. Talk about freak out. So, I mean, we're slamming the windows. We're running back upstairs. And that colonel, I mean, I saw it just as the last glimpse. He's moving this way. It hits him. He's like, boom. You know, just start coming right at us. We're like, oh, Lord, this is going to be terrible. So, you know, he comes up. And, I mean, he's like, everybody get in the hallway. So, I mean, we come out. I confess. Thankfully, the punishment wasn't bad. And it makes it into a great story. I totally hit a full bird colonel with a water balloon. Yes, I did. Anyway, my point is that you have those friends that, you know, tell you to do something that sounds like a good idea, sounds fun, but really aren't in the long run. Watch out for them. I mean, you have those people that will tell you to do things, and when you weigh it against what God says, it's probably not a good idea. Beware of them. And the last thing that these Gibeonites represent is a temptation of good. What? Remember I said that, you know, you got the negative thing and then the positive thing. So the temptation of good. What do I mean by that? How can good be a temptation? It's when you have to sacrifice best for good. Because here's the thing. God wants the best for you. God wants you to step into the calling and destinies and plans and purposes that he's made for your life. But the enemy recognizes that, and he says, okay, if I can mitigate their effect, if I can lessen the impact that they have on this world, if I can tempt them to sidetrack and just accept good enough as opposed to the best that God has for you, he's doing a pretty good job. Beware the good. If God says that you're going to step into a calling that is so big that you can see no way about it, but God has said it, don't Give in to good. Don't settle for second best. Press into what God has promised. He will make it happen whether you understand how it's going to happen or not. Don't give in to the temptation of good. I like the fact that Nehemiah does the exact opposite of what Joshua ends up doing here. You kind of wish that it was written first, so Joshua would have been like, oh, 
I probably should deal with this differently. But Nehemiah, just so you can kind of understand what happens here, he was called to build a wall around the city. The holy city had fallen, and he was going to build this wall to protect it. And he was like, my city is it's, it's, uh, vulnerable to attack. And God placed his burden on his heart, provided the ways, miraculously provided the materials for him to go do this, and he's in the midst of doing it. And he has some people come up to him. This is in Nehemiah 6, verses 2 and 3. There's some hard names, so bear with me. Sinbalat and Jeshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecathirim in the plain of Ono. If someone tells you to meet at a place called Ono, probably a bad idea. Anyway, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? See, basically he's like, God's called me over this direction. You want to talk? Come with me. But I'm not going over there and ignoring the direction God's calling me. That's what Joshua should have done. He's like, hey, God told me to take out this land, to take possession of it, and that's what I'm going to do. But instead, verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions and did not counsel from God or ask counsel from God. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Not, not like vulgarity swore. They, they made a promise. Basically, they made a promise not to take them out. They didn't realize that they were living in the midst of the land that God had said, go take them out. Now, just a little side note here. God takes this incredibly seriously. I mean, God said take out the, the land. You might think, oh, okay, that super, super it supersedes the word right here to uh, you know, make peace and let them live. No, 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 no. God's like, you made a covenant with them. You made a promise to them, I'm holding you to it. Even later on, uh, Solomon, he ends up breaking this and harming some of the Gemenites. This is generations later. And God takes his blessing off the nation of Israel, and David's like, what the heck? I think it was David. I can't remember. Anyway, the guy's like, what the heck? Why has the blessing of, of God been taken off the nation of Israel? Ultimately, it's because Solomon had sinned against this promise. And seven of Solomon's sons were given to the Canaanites to be killed as a payment, basically. God takes this very seriously. And so be very, very careful about what you swear to because God will hold you to it. I was thinking to myself in this particular passage, why did these guys who have seen God part the Jordan, make the walls of Jericho fall, delivered the nation of Ai and innumerable other miracles and things, why did these guys fail to consult with God? Ultimately, I believe it was the effect of success. The effect of success 
success can often be, a, you know, one of those things that we're like, yay, success, because it's what we're striving for, right? But beware in the midst of success that you don't give yourself too much credit, especially when it was God who won the war, especially when it was God who did everything, and you get a big head and pride about it. That's ultimately what I think happened here. And so it had a number of effects. The first one, they underestimated the importance of the choice. Just as I mentioned earlier, you don't understand how important your choices are. You don't understand the impact that your choices can have, not only upon you, but upon other people. Because the enemy, as I mentioned earlier, would love to have you settle for good. But imagine if you do settle for good, how many people will go unblessed, untouched, unimpacted by the Lord because you settled for good and didn't step into his plans, his purposes, his callings for your life. Your choices matter, and they affect more than just you. They trusted too much in their own judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 it articulates that we should walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because we've got a God that's bigger than sight. We've got a God that's got a bigger perspective than what we're capable of seeing. When he exists outside of time, when he exists outside of even reality, because he can affect it. He can turn water to wine. He can speak the cosmos into existence with a word. When you're dealing with that kind of a God... You've got to recognize that, hey, he, he is not affected by sight. He defines sight. And when you look at your situation, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is so big. This is so overwhelming. Just remember that God is bigger. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. That's what they failed to do here. They failed to acknowledge God in the midst of it. And most egregiously, they fell out of dependence on God. They fell out of dependence on God. See, this one I want to talk about for just a couple minutes, maybe about 30. Just kidding. In our world today, it's easy to get this reversed because, I mean, you take a child, you know, you, as a child, you're in utter dependence on your parents, and then you grow, and you gain some independence, you begin to be able to walk, you get a later bedtime, you grow even more, you're able to take the car out, you're able to do that, and eventually, hopefully, when you step into maturity, you are independent of mom and dad. You're not living under the roof, you're not living under their paycheck. You are able to provide for yourself. And in our world today, maturity basically is defined, well, not defined, but largely indicated by independence. Your ability to thrive on your own. But the truth is that that is exactly, precisely, unequivocally the opposite of what maturity is as a Christian. Because when you become a new Christian, you recognize, okay, maybe my salvation is dependent on God, but what about the rest of my life? 
And I guarantee you, the more you grow, the more you mature with God, you realize just how desperately you need him in your day-to-day, moment-to-moment, second-by-second life. Dependence isn't a weakness. It is design. There's a phrase that says, I got this God-shaped hole. And maybe you've heard it. Sometimes I've heard it made fun of. But really, it's kind of true. Because the bottom line is, all of us were designed with a desperate need for God. There is something incomplete in us that only God can complete. Only God can fulfill. And no matter how many things we try to fill that hole with, everything will come up wanting except for God himself. Independence is foolishness when it comes to God. Dependency is wisdom. We are designed for desperate dependence. We are created for desperate dependence. And that's exactly how it should be. And therefore, Christianity isn't a crutch. Having Christ as my Lord and Savior isn't a crutch. It's more like a prosthetic It's more like an artificial heart. Because the bottom line is, the more you recognize how desperately you were designed to need God, the more you recognize you can't make it through the day without him. There's a passage in Psalms that says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I dare you to try to figure out what that means. I dare you to press into God to recognize what it means that as the deer pants for the water, as the deer is desperate for the water, so my soul, in a moment-to-moment, lifetime desperation for God's presence in our lives, it's that good. So how do we do this? I want to just conclude with this. First of all, seek God's wisdom. James 1-5 through says, If anyone, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, reproach and it will be given to him. Look, God will give it, but he's not going to force it upon you. You have to seek it. You have to ask it. He's not going to pound you over the head with it, but he'll give it. So how do we do this? How do we stay dependent? Because we're designed for desperate dependence. First of all, stay humble. That's what these guys failed to do. They let their pride, their arrogance take over. Secondly, make it a regular practice. What do I mean by this? See, they forgot to ask God about this little choice because they misunderstood how big the choice was. So, Clint, are you saying, so whenever I go to uh, the habit, which is better than in and out, anyway, should I ask God if I should get cheese and extra pickles on my burger or not? Why not? And so, I mean, you may think that that's just a trivial thing, but here's the thing. You never know when God's going to speak. And when you practice asking God for the little things, you're darn sure not going to miss God on the big things. And so, why not? And the last one is know when you're vulnerable. Have people around you that can recognize where you're at and recognize the desire that you have to live in dependence on God. 
and they can see when you're getting arrogant, when you're getting a little bit of a big head. Have brothers and sisters around you that can have the freedom, and not only just the freedom, but the responsibility to speak into your life, to call you back in line in dependence on God. See, dependence on the Lord is not weakness. It's our design. So my encouragement to you is just don't fail to pray. Don't fail to pray. Don't forget that you were designed to be dependent upon him, and that's where strength is found, not weakness. And so my last thought here is that I just want to give all of us an opportunity to fill that God-shaped hole an opportunity to embrace the gift of God of salvation, of fulfillment that God offers. Because the truth is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth. He stepped out of heaven into flesh, lived the perfect life which we are incapable of living. He was murdered on a cross. He was dead and buried, and then he rose three days later. And in doing so, he proved three things. One, he was who he said he was. He was God. Two, he could do what he said he could do, which was conquer death, hell, and the grave. And three, we could have what he says we can have, which is eternal life with him in heaven. And so I want to offer all of us an opportunity to enter into that relationship where that maturity and dependency is inverted, where we, become, we begin the process of learning to become more dependent on him, where we see the blessing and the glory that's found in that. And so if everyone would just bow their heads and close their eyes, I'm going to play a, pray a quick prayer. And it's not a prayer that saves you, but it's the, the earnest desire to press into God and ask him to forgive you for your sins. If that's you today, pray with me either out loud or in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm not perfect. And I'm so sorry that I've sinned. But dear Lord Jesus, I know that you died for me. I know that you died so that I could be forgiven of my sins. So to the best of my ability, today I embrace the gift of salvation by placing my faith in you as my Lord, my boss, and my Savior. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me share this with you. I hope you're encouraged. I hope that you take at least one more step today in learning what it means to be designed to be in desperate dependence on God and that you walk more fully in that.